Welcome to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and we are airing, as most of you probably know if you're listening to the show right now, on Kixie AM 880 or on KKNW 1150 AM. We simulcast this radio show. Uh, today, Eric Crema is not here. He's out actually doing some work today, I understand. And uh, he'll be back with us next week. And uh, we'll miss him today, but it'll be good to have him back. Let me jump into the show today because it is pretty extensive. And um, it starts, uh, well, actually didn't start out with this, but on the show today we're going to have a segment that I did from the 1990s. I call it the uh, Profiles of Experience Vault. And those are interviews I had with people back at another time. And I like to bring those back every now and then and uh, feature them uh, on the air. Today is Robin Leach. If you remember that name from Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, I got to meet him in 1989, I believe, is when he was in Seattle, and he was promoting a show and a couple of other shows that he was having on the docket right at that time. As a matter of fact, one was called Runaway, and uh, that did pretty well. I never watched it. I didn't really know much about it. And then he had another show, and again, in addition to Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, called Preview. And I'm not sure that went too far or was that successful. But nonetheless, that's what he was uh, there to talk about. And I had a chance to catch up with him. And he provided me, at the time, the three best places to visit in the world. So that's uh, Robin Leach coming up uh, a little later. Voices in History. In 1959, a play opened on Broadway to a lot of hype. And then it was made into one of the most successful movies of all time. The review of the play was mixed, including the family that it was about. Eric, do you have any idea what that um, play and movie is in your mind? I, I have an idea. You want me to guess? Go for it. Is it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Nope. Okay. <laughs> then I have okay. no idea. All right, but you know, that's <laughs> not bad. That's not bad. I can see how you'd get that. Timeless Classics Today. This is going to be a woman who grew up in Detroit and enjoyed a lot of success in the 1960s. She had a string of hit songs, one I will share with you today, and this was from the spring of 1965. We have two features today. American Humane CEO, Dr. Robin Ganser. Fascinating woman, fascinating organization. This American Humane goes back to like the 1880s. She's going to talk about more of that, and it was for the humane treatment of animals, and I had no idea that this type of effort went back so far. Fascinating. Um, then we have a Marcy Carricker Smothers, and uh, she has written a book called About 100, 100 Disney Adventures. I had no idea, and I'm a Disneyland freak. I mean, I really enjoy Disneyland and have over the years. I had no idea it was this extensive, but he's, she'll be here talking about that. Our comedy clip for today, Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster are back from a segment I took from their show, Peculiar Podcast. I won't go into a great description right now because they're just coming up in just a few moments, but it's a skit that he had called Roscoe's Grand Opening from his Saturday night, excuse me, almost live dates. Anyhow, that's coming up in just a moment. Voices of Experience, what is this about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, fitness, and education, and entertainment with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And today I want to talk about one of the myths about going into business for yourself. That's coming up again later in the hour. Peculiar Podcast with Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster coming up in just a moment. All right, so uh, we are back very quickly. We have uh, Pat Cashman and Lisa Foster, and this was their most recent podcast that they had just last week. Um, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, it's called Roscoe's Oriental Emporium. Uh, interesting that Pat Cashman made the observation that because it's called Oriental, he may not be able to do that on, on uh, that bit today because of that. But uh, 
Why don't we just get into it? I'll talk about it afterwards. But again, you'll get an idea of what this is about. I was thinking about this the other day. Yeah. Talking about our radio show Mm -hmm. and uh, my time on TV on a sketch comedy show. And I started thinking about some of the things I used to do. uh, That wouldn't play. That wouldn't play play now. Yes. And one and probably one of the most the the when I did the show almost live it was a sketch comedy show in Seattle uh, and you could find it on YouTube if you don't know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about but yeah. I probably the most commentary the most attention I ever got was for a bit called Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium. It's so great! It's such a classic. Everybody and, talks about that bit. And nope. And, and thank you, but. But the people, more and more, I'm hearing from people. Oh, you can't say Oriental rug emporium. That's that you say, ornamental, or just say Roscoe's rug emporium. Don't, right. don't put the Oriental part. And and they're right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though the actual true. businesses themselves call right. them proudly call themselves an Oriental rug place. Right. They use that word because people know what what kind of rugs you're talking about. That's a style of rug. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. maybe a little more embracing of, of uh, Turkish culture, for example, sure. than actually China. But it's always right. been known as Oriental rugs. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think I could do that bit now. I'd have to oh. change the name. <clears throat> and that yep. might change the bit because the idea was that these places never actually close, even though they say they're going to close, uh, you know, next month, next week or whatever. <laughs> right, so they always had these big going out of business. <laughs> Sorry, I just sales. started cigarettes. Yeah, yeah, they always had these big going out of business. Uh, like it'd be painted in the front window, like painted. Yeah, going out of business, last chance, prices slashed, everything. Do you have the? Right do you do you have the bit? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, here here was the bit. This is the television bit. Uh, I initially did it on our radio show, though. But this was the bit as. It existed on TV. Check it out. At Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium, we're saying goodbye. We're closing our store forever. And you can save like never before. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is saying, that's it. It's over. We're done. Time's up. Farewell. So long. Toodaloo. We're out of here. We really mean it. No kidding. This is really it this time. I know we've said it before, but this is the real deal this time. We're hitting the bricks. Gonna mosey. Gonna sashay. Gonna clear out. Vamoose. Saying adios. Ciao. Vita Zane. Saranara. Aravara. Off to the wago. Godspeed until we meet again, which we won't because Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is closing forever. We're never coming back. It's over. We're done. We're shoving off. Bowing out. Flake it off, getting gone. It's at an end. We're cutting up, kaput, finish, drop the curtain, straight tent, pull up snakes, beneath. This is absolutely positively it this time. We're not pulling your leg on this. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium is down the road. We swear we won't ever be back. It ain't gonna happen. Forget about it. We're shutting it down. We've lost our lease. Can't find it. Don't care. Because we're done. Close and shut. Putting up the shutters. Bolting the doors. Slamming them closed. Gonna board the place up. Nailing it shut. Fake nails. Nothing gets in or out. Stealing it off. We're history. We really, 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 really need it this time. We're not jerking your chain on this. This ain't no snow job. We're not bluffing. No kidding. So shave your big fat bottom down here. PDQ. Because I swear, if you dawdle things around, you'll be SOL. Because we're closing forever. Any day now. Could be a matter of weeks, days, maybe tomorrow. But then, that's it. Roscoe's Oriental Rug Emporium. Going out of business since 1957. And then I did a couple of follow-up bits. One of them was Roscoe's grand reopening. And then, <laughs> That's right. And then the third bit was that they completely changed their name. And now it's Alonzo's East Asian Floor Coverings. But it's the same bit, really, yeah. just rewritten. Yeah, and, and we, exactly. Right? I milked that cow dry. Oh, you yeah. did very well, too, by the way. So again, that's Pat Cashman from his days at Almost Live. I'm going to share something with you now, and that has to do with my reaction when I saw that for the first time. Now, I don't know if it loses something. It probably does because you don't see Pat Cashman making this delivery, and that is enormously funny in and of itself. You just heard the uh, words. And uh, 
I remember watching that distinctly. I'm going to say it's about 2003 or four, some time in that time frame. I was uh, sitting in a chair watching this and by myself, and I see him to start up and do this. And at one point in it, I started laughing so hard, I almost, I don't say passed out. I don't want to exaggerate it. But I fell on the floor laughing so hard, I, I couldn't get over it. And I was delighted to see that he brought this back. So I had to get it on the air. And I had the good fortune to tell him about my experience with that, uh, the Oriental uh, Emporium. Oh, gosh, uh, Roscoe's Oriental Emporium many years ago. And uh, I'm telling you, it it just it got to me. So I was so thrilled again to um, play it for you today. And uh, if you want to, you can go to YouTube. And if you want to see, again, the video of it, and just um, uh, put Pat Cashman Roscoe, R-O-S-C-O-E. That's, again, you can see the visual as well as what he did narratively on that. And you can see also Roscoe's grand opening. You can see uh, Alonzo's East Asian floor covering. And, um, of course, the one you just heard now. So anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. And thank you again, Pat and Lisa, for allowing me to share that on the show. So let's see what else is coming up today. We are going to be moving into an interview I had with um, a very interesting person. Rather than describe it again, I'm going to do that in a moment. So let's just get to it. Dr. Robin Ganser serves as president and CEO of American Humane. Now, American Humane is the country's first national humane organization and the world's largest certifier of animal welfare, overseeing the humane treatment of more than one billion animals across the globe each year. In addition to what we talk about, the scope of the organization, she also has a book out called American Humane Cookbook. I want to start out the interview with an amazing statistic that Dr. Ganser told me about the history of American Humane, of the organization American Humane. I think what really jumped out at me is that American Humane is an organization that's been around nearly 150 years. I had no idea. Yes, and almost 150 years. We're our country's oldest national humane organization. And we were founded, believe it or not, on farm animal advocacy, which is so appropriate that we're talking today about our launch of the Humane Table and really trying to provide a service to educate what it is to be humane for farmers and ranchers, uh, especially as we go into the holiday season. But a hundred and almost 50-year-old organization, and you know us already through many of our programs. Our rescue work is well over 100 years old, founded on the battlefields of World War One. We were called overseas by the Secretary of War to care for the war horses. And if you saw Steven Spielberg's beautiful movie, War Horse, the background's American Humane. Our work in Hollywood continues to this day. For over 85 years, we've protected animal stars. We've worked 100 years with the military beyond the rescue event. We also provide service dogs for wounded warriors, and we reunite battle buddies. And today, we're so proud that our farm animal program is the largest of its kind in the world certifying farmers and ranchers for doing what it takes to be humane, the animals in their care. Humane food choices for the holidays, how can we do that? Well, you know, it's so important, I think, for so many consumers. In fact, 67% of consumers in a recent study said they would definitely want to, uh, to have a humane choice offered. 70% of consumers said that they would choose an American Humane certified product over one that wasn't. So that tells me that our values are really shifting to care about the lives of farm animals. And so that's why we created our farm animal program 20 years ago. And today it's the largest of its kind in the world. Uh, I launched the Humane Table Cookbook this holiday season to celebrate with home chefs cooking with compassion because we really want to talk about our farm animal program, what it takes to be American Humane certified, and then of course carry on those conversations in our dining room table over the holidays and every season. So that's why we created the Humane Table. Well, let's say, what can a consumer do to make sure they are making humane choices when they go to the store uh, for the holidays or any other time? Well, they can look for our American Humane Certified logo 
Our logo is on products like a Butterball Turkeys, American Humane Certified. In fact, we certify 90% of all cage-free eggs in our country. So if you're enjoying a cage-free egg for breakfast or using that in one of your wonderful holiday recipes, 90% of those are American Humane Certified. So chances are you're already making that choice at your grocery store. But do look for our logo and then you can rest assured that that animal had a humane life. And what is defined as a humane life for an animal? Humane life for an animal is defined through science. Actually, for our humane uh, heartland program, our farm program, we uh, invite the world's leading scientists and top ethicists to determine standards for farm animals. How should they be treated? How should they be raised? And that's a very uh, crucial part of our program. So our scientific advisory committee of experts determine those 200-point standards, and then American Humane ensures those standards are met through independent audits of farms and ranches. So it's a really rigorous program. Uh, there is a incredible amount of time and attention to standards, and we are actually boots on the ground verifying that those standards are maintained to ensure those animals have a humane life. What percentage of farmers in this country follow these guidelines? Not enough. You know, I look at uh, our program, we probably represent 12 to 15 percent of U.S. food production for animal protein. That's a nice number. We're about a billion animals under our logo for the farm animal program. That's lovely. The program's grown from 50 million a decade ago, so it is sizable growth. But my mother always reminds me there's 9 billion animals that need our seal, need to have a humane life, deserve a humane life. So we have a long way to go and energize farmers and ranchers to do right by their animals. I think consumers want it, and I think they're going to demand it. Let's, for a moment, looking uh, at your cookbook. It's really nice and, and well laid out. And uh, just wanted to ask what your favorite recipes are in the, in the uh, book. Thank you. And uh, the cookbook is actually photographed. Most of the recipes are photographed at my home. So it's a very personal collection of recipes at my home. Uh, and I think that just shows how we cook with compassion in our Gansert home. But I love the recipes that I, I will celebrate this Thanksgiving holiday. Pesto deviled eggs are great for holiday parties. They're one of my absolute favorite, easy to make and quite gorgeous on a, on a serving dish. We also recommend cheese bruschetta for a holiday party, delicious and gorgeous. You know, for an every night dining experience, the crispy pan roasted chicken breast is incredible. For Sunday dinners, I'm always using the smoked paprika chicken recipe. That's delicious and my, uh, my family loves that. I love too, we're serving many more vegetables on our tables today. The roasted vegetable and tomato souffle is not only pretty, it's delicious and so healthy and yummy. But the centerpiece for Thanksgiving is this incredible whole butter citrus roast turkey. It's courtesy of Butterball, uh, American Humane Certified. We, we serve it with herbs. We usually put a little bit of pomegranate seeds on the side for garnish. It's an incredible centerpiece for any humane table. How did you personally become involved with uh, the American Humane? Like, you're the CEO. I mean, was this something of a passion of yours for pretty much your whole life, or did this just come to you at some point that you said, I need to do something like this? I always loved animals. I've loved animals my whole life. And 12 years ago, I was honored to be selected to be the CEO of this incredible organization. And one night, I had dinner with my good friend, Betty White. Rest in peace. Betty was a long time, the longest time supporter of American Humane, a board member back in the 70s. We were her very first animal welfare charity. And Betty sat there and hold, held my hand. She was getting into her advanced years. And she said, Robin, I'm going to pass on the heavy mantle of responsibility for animals to you. And that very night, Paul, I knew that I was committed to American Humane and to improving animals' lives for as long as I live. Wow. Glad I asked that question. Betty White, what a legend and, and what a treasure she was. Anything else before we go? No, to learn more, visit AmericanHumane.org. And our cookbook's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Great holiday gift. And I hope everyone looks at the Humane table and enjoys those recipes. My thanks to Dr. Robin Gansert, CEO of American Humane. After the interview, I went out to the kitchen, opened up the refrigerator, and I know that we get organic eggs. And I wanted to see if we had that little seal on the side with certified humane on the carton. And sure enough, it was there. There's the holidays coming up, and then you can search for a certified humane turkey then. Her book is called American Humane Cookbook. 
All you need to do, though, is Google Humane Cookbook. That's Humane Cookbook. You just received some startling news. You're going to need brain surgery. But the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Well, we're back once again. I really enjoyed that interview with um, Dr. Gansert. And uh, again, I was very pleased to go to my refrigerator after that and see that our eggs had humane stamped on it. So uh, fascinating. And again, I thought it was interesting that this organization has been around since the 1880s. Had no idea. Well, we're going to be doing voices in history today. We're not going back to the 1880s, but we are going back a few years, and we'll start out with um, the first Voices in History for today, and that occurred 63 years ago today. Now, I asked Eric what was the movie perhaps we were thinking about, and you guessed Who Was Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I did, yeah. What you told me was incorrect. That's right. (laughs) You're fired. No. Um, Yes, it was, uh, we also talked about I don't remember that movie. Well, I've never seen it. But anyhow, I'm going to see it now based on what, what you said. I'm it's considered a classic. It's got Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, George Seagal, oh, uh, Sandy okay. Dennis. So, wow. uh, yeah, a big cast. Okay. Well, this one, again, this was a, a play that opened up on Broadway, and everybody's heard of this. It is called The Sound of Music, and um, some of the storyline was accurate. Maria was a former nun. She did marry Count von Trapp and became a stepmother to his children. That is true. But the Trapp family had issues with the play, and the real story was ignored by the creators of the Broadway musical. That was their claim. Hmm. And that was Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein's version that caused friction with the real von Trapp family. Um, The Broadway show did, though, receive mixed reviews, but a week after the show's premiere, the album shot up to the top of the Billboard album charts. So success has many fathers, right? And uh, it, it really did quite well, and I think some of the criticism went away. And then, of course, they made it into a movie. I believe the year was 1965. Correct. The Sound of Music. So uh, anyhow. Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews. But I didn't really know that it was so controversial when the play first came out. On November 17th, 1968, the Oakland Raiders scored two touchdowns in nine seconds to beat the New York Jets. With just over a minute to play, NBC swished off the game in favor of a previously scheduled program called Heidi. And um, the fans were Outrage. I bet. Yeah. And the network executives learned a lesson that they will never forget. And one exec said, whatever you do in life, you better not leave an NFL football game. And I don't think any exec has ever done that in history. And I'm sure in all the networks and every place, college football, pro football, this Heidi incident is still alive in those booths. <laughs> you know, oh, we can break away. No, no, I know they're down by four touchdowns with eight seconds to go. But anyhow, it, it was big. I remember it was just a big story at the time. November 17th, 2003, Arnold Schwarzenegger is sworn in as the 38th governor of California at the state capitol in Sacramento. The governator. The governator. 
What was it? What'd you say? The yeah, yeah, and that uh, that was his nickname at the time, you know, because right. he played the Terminator and then he became governor. So that's it. And um, and as you know, that uh, not too famous actor. I mean, not, not sliding Ronald Reagan, but he wasn't that famous of an actor. But just a few governors before that, he was the thirty third governor of California. So the actors were kind of dominating there for a little while. Another president moving to November nineteenth, eighteen sixty three, at a military cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, President Abraham Lincoln delivers one of the most memorable speeches in American history. Eric, put you on the spot. The the Gettysburg Address. Bingo. <laughs> Four See now you're at five hundred. And... <laughs> you see, you'd be a star if you were playing baseball. Uh, yes, you are correct. And attorney David Willis. See, this is what I didn't know. This is why I kind of like these, because I knew he did that. Okay, a little background here. Um, An attorney, David Willis, bought 17 acres of pasture and turned it into a cemetery. And that's where the Battle of Gettysburg was fought in July of that year, 1863. And he invited an Edward Everett to deliver a speech at the cemetery at the dedication. Almost as an afterthought, Will sent a letter to Lincoln just two weeks before the ceremony, requesting him to attend and speak at the dedication. The crowd listened to Everett for over two hours before Lincoln spoke. Lincoln's address lasted just two to three minutes. After remember, a two-hour speech, and right. he stands up, <laughs> gives a two- to three-minute speech, and in that speech, he redefined the mission of the Civil War. It was not being fought just to save the Union, but a struggle for freedom and equality for all. And two things I've read in addition to this uh, event is that a lot of people thought Lincoln was ill after he just gave his two or three-minute speech and sat down. They're going, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, you know, th- how is he feeling well? And uh, that because long, long speeches, that was the norm then. Right. I mean, it wasn't really the content. It was like if you didn't speak for two hours, it wasn't something that was well-received. I guess they never heard that brevity is the soul of wit. Absolutely. And I don't think David Willis, I don't think his speech is engraved in the Lincoln Memorial. Nobody remembers his speech anymore. Right. You know, <laughs> they definitely remember Lincoln's. Abraham yeah. Lincoln. I remember that from a teacher, a marketing teacher, who said, I think the Gettysburg Address was 271 words. 271 words. And to your point, it's brevity. If you want it to be remembered, keep it brief, which I should learn because I'm kind of rambling now. <laughs> so let's go closer to home. These will be very quick. Um, Seattle got its start on November 13th, 1851, as the Denny Party landed at Alki Point, about a mile away from my home. A monument to the arrival was dedicated in West Seattle on November 13th, 1951. And finally, another local uh, little antidote. On November 12, 1875, the Washington Territorial Legislature incorporated Tacoma. This I didn't know. In 1881, a neighboring town called New Tacoma was also incorporated by the legislature. Right. Did you know this? Yeah, because I, well, I live in Tacoma. There, yeah. So you, you did know. I've, yeah. So there's Old Town and there's New Tacoma, but it's it's all it's Tacoma city limits now, for sure. Never knew that. And that, that's uh, with the 1883 legislature. They merged the both together, Old Tacoma and New Tacoma. Hmm? I always say facts stranger than fiction. So there you have it for today on that score. So let's see. We're going to be back uh, in just a few moments, I mean seconds, with um, an interview I have with a uh, Marcy Carricker Smothers. So we'll be just back in a moment. All right, uh, we're back again with uh, Marcy Carricker Smothers. She wrote a book called 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime. And um, I was looking forward to hearing from all the Disney fanatics. That's promotion that I got in wanting to consider interviewing her. And then that got to me because I am a Disney fanatic. Um, 
I lived in Southern California back in the late 60s and mid-70s. I think I went to Disneyland about, uh, gosh, at least 30 times and in that length of time. And one of the reasons I really enjoyed having visitors come down to visit us in California is I could go there and not seem obsessed. But I really, that's one area, one place that I went to that I kind of thought what it would be like, and I've done this with a lot of things, and either I'm disappointed or, okay, it is what I thought it was going to be. Going to Disneyland, and I was like 17, 18 years old. I wasn't a five-year-old. It was just more magnificent than I ever thought of, and, and it just came to me in that way. So when I saw this, you take myself, let's say being a fanatic, multiply times 100, and this is uh, Marcy Carricker Smothers. I saw a documentary on Walt Disney about eight or ten years ago. It was really, really well done. Let me know if I have this right. I think when he was very young, he had the love of the railroad. And what I'm yeah. submitting is that he also went with his daughters, I read, to a lot of fairs and things and saw roller coasters. And he took that idea and made super roller coasters. But he also put stories next to them like the um, Matterhorn, Gold Mountain, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, that'd be a slow roller coaster. But is that how this kind of developed? Well, you've got it right. I mean, Walt was beginning when he was a little kid, you know, in Marceline, Missouri, where his hometown. His uncle Mike was a train engineer, and he used to be able to ride in the cab with him. And then he became a news butcher, was a teenager so, on the train. So you had to love trains. That was one piece. But there's many inspirations for Walt for Disneyland, including Tivoli Gardens, which is one of the adventures and the 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime, as because he traveled the world. And the world and books influenced what we know at the parks now as well. It's multifaceted. But essentially, he used to take his daughters, Diane and Sharon, to a merry-go-round in Griffith Park, also one of our 100 Adventures. And he always he, he would muse there, you know, there should be a place where – Parents can take their children where it's safe and they can play and have a great time. And that was one of the original, you know, spots like ground zeros for Disneyland. There are others, but that's one of them. How many uh, major parks, affiliated parks like, you know, Epcot and California Adventure, museums like in Missouri's hometown and in San Francisco, there's a museum. I mean, just the breadth of what the Disneyland name or Walt Disney name is, is, is incredible. It's massive, and I can't answer it. I can't say, like, the simple math is there are 12 parks worldwide, well, 12 actual parks, six destinations, because, for instance, there's four parks at Walt Disney World and two parks in Tokyo. And, you know, and, and the Disney experience that Walt started in 1923, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company in 2023, you know, has expands the entire world, everything from resorts to cruise ships to theme parks, obviously, movies. I mean, his influence still today, all these years after he is gone, is just massive. Yeah, and then how did you get hooked on Disney? Well, first and foremost, I'm a Disney geek, and that goes, and I'm proud Disney geek, <laughs> and that goes back to my childhood in Southern California. I got to go to Disneyland one day a year. It was always my favorite day of the year. My grandparents would take me, and that's where I really, my happiest memories, really, truly, of my childhood were that one day of the year. So maybe that's eight or nine happy childhood days. They were all at Disneyland. And then, of course, as an adult, when I could afford to take myself there, I would, and then bring my kids there. But when I became a Disney author, my first book, Eat Like Walt, The Wonderful World of Disney Food, was a result of my agent asked me a really good question. I did a radio show with Guy Fieri for three years. I got a book deal out of that. And my agent asked me, what's next? And I said, I want to write about the food at Disneyland. And he said, what are you going to do differently than Instagram or Facebook? And that was a great question. So I was curious, had the culinary history been written? No. Had Walt been uh, want to make the food experience immersive uh, and entertaining like attractions? Yes. And that's how I sold my book to Disney Editions, and that was published in 2017. So I've had a steep learning curve. I've always loved Walt and absolutely mystified by him. And, you know, with these seven years with access to the Walt Disney Archives and all of my primary sources, people that worked with Walt, whether they're alive or I read their accounts or their books, um, has given me just a growing, a deeper, deeper, ongoing appreciation of Walt. And that is why 
I felt it was imperative in 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime, among the many Disney adventures, to have some that are outside the company formally, but represent the man, not just the legend, but the man and all the influences that we know today in the parks and movies. We know about the Disneyland experience for kids, but there are also experiences for adults only. What type of experiences do you have in that area? Well, for adults, before the adults only, of course, a lot of, there's, by the way, there is a thing, Paul, it's a hashtag, it's very popular, it's called Disney adulting. It's an, it's, it's a thing, it's a verb, it's a noun, it's all that. So when, when adults can go to the parks without young children, sometimes that means that they can write the, the, the thrilling attractions like Expedition Everest or Incredicoaster, which will never get me on, because they don't, that their young kids don't want to do. But when most people talk about Disney adulting, so that is the opportunity to have adult beverages in the parks and resorts. So there is, for instance, uh, Oga's Cantina, which is at Galaxy's Edge at both Disneyland and Walt Disney World, where you are, you step into the movie. You are in Oga's Cantina. The characters are there. The drinks are themed. And then my personal favorite, which is the bar crawl on the monorail, the monorail crawl at Walt Disney World, where you start maybe at the Polynesian, go to the Trader Sam's and Tiki Bar, one of our adventures, and then you go to Grand Floridian, go to one of the great bars there, including the one themed Beauty and the Beast, my favorite, and then maybe end up at the Contemporary and watch the fireworks from the California Grill with your final cocktail. So, yes, this is what we refer to as Disney adulting, and we do consider it an adventure of a lifetime. Another thing is that there are other things about Disneyland, which I said when I went through your book, I had no idea how the depth of the parks are across the world. What are some of those little known pockets of Disney parks? Well, you know, there, there, there's many. I would say um, at Disneyland, uh, and this is free, it's at one of the bonus adventures um, in the limited edition of 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime, is go sit in Walt's personal box at the Golden Horseshoe, which was an attraction that he built that he absolutely loved. And while he was known to sit on the floor with regular people and guests, he was a regular guy, you can sit in the box at Walt Disney's box. So I think that's pretty cool. Um, another is that you can ride the tender, the back of the, the front of the train with the engineers on select days at Disneyland for sure. It's coming back after COVID. If you're wearing long pants and you've got covered shoes, you can ask at the Main Street Station, can I ride on the tender? And it's incredible. Two people can do it sit there right behind him for the entire Grand Circle tour. There's no better view of Disneyland than from there. Just to let you know, I've been to Disneyland, the one in Anaheim, probably 20 times myself. I lived in La Mirada, California for about six years, and anybody would come down our house that said, it's a must-visit Disneyland. I never got tired of it. I don't get tired of it either, and I'm here I'm here now. Uh, I never get tired of it, and honestly, it's the biggest honor in the world to write for Disney, and now National Geographic, the first ever collaboration between Nat Geo and Disney, and it's been a, it, as Indiana Jones says, it's big fun, and it's just thrilling to bring all these adventures to people. Some of them are free, and that was very important to, to me. Not everything is a big bucket list item. Everything from achievable to aspirational, and I like to think it's like a combination guide and wish book, but mostly I hope it makes you happy and honor what Walt Disney started in 1923. I, you know, I, I would I would hearken back to that I think that it, this is just remarkable, and you have asked how many things are there in the world that somehow, one way or the other, that Walt Disney touched or inspired or, you know, was the genesis of, and that's what's so great about the book is I think in almost so many instances we could tie something back to Walt, and if we can't tie it back to Walt, that's okay. Nat Geo expeditions are phenomenal. And I just think there's something for everybody. But mostly, I hope you have a good time. The photos are exquisite. Thank you to Adrian Coakley, the photo editor. That what, Everything you'd expect in the Nat Geo book, it is an adventure in itself. Well, that was interesting. Um, wonder if... Uh... Anybody gets uh, more excited about Disneyland after that interview? I certainly did. How about you, Eric? I'm picking on you today. We don't have the other Eric. <laughs> yeah, you know, I it's been a long time since I've been to Disneyland. Um, so I'll have to check it out again sometime. You mean you're telling me you grew up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a nice way of saying it. Believe it or uh, not. Paul, it's been a long time since I've been there, but I turned 10 and then I moved on. Okay, I get it. I'm not hurt, but uh, I, no, still, I, mean, I still like Disneyland. Tons of adults love Disneyland. And, you know, if I lived in Southern California, I'd probably make it a, a regular destination. But it's just, you know, it's a long way to go for someone in the 
great Northwest, you know, that doesn't have kids. <laughs> You're being very kind. Uh, you know, but you know, what's interesting that that great interview, by the way, uh, but uh, uh, several years back, there's a manuscript museum in Tacoma, and they had an exhibit of the blueprints of Disneyland. Um, in Tacoma? Yeah, wow. yeah. And it was a really cool exhibit. So, Because uh, it's, you know, Disneyland is one of those, the most famous places in the world. So to see the actual blueprints from before it was built, when they were designing it, was really interesting. When it opened up, was it 1955 or 1956? I think it was maybe 55. You can look that up if you, for a moment. But it was so close to the opening, and they had so many challenges getting everything in place. Like the trees were still being planted at midnight, and there were really <laughs> in a crunch to get it done before the gates opened up. And um, I remember reading as well, I mean, the cement wasn't dry yet. And there are people, there were marks in the cement after the first day they had to go back oh, and wow. repave it and things. But some, yeah, I mean, some it Mickey was, footprints. <laughs> right, exactly. July 17th, 1955 ah, is when it, it opened up. All right. So now on to another celebrity type from, gosh, another era, another time. The name of the gentleman is Robin Leach. I think I mentioned at the beginning, I had an interview when he came to Seattle in 1989, his show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous was really hot. I think it went for, well, I'll, let's just get into the interview with him and, and we'll discuss a little bit about uh, his visit here and some other things I found out about Robin Leach since. Basically three places in the world that are the best, the, the most fantastic, and you're guaranteed of sun at this time of the year. So you can escape the icy blasts of the Northwest Passage and head down to a place in Mexico called Manzanilla where there is a hotel called Las Hardas. And Las Hardas was where Dudley Moore and Bo Derek filmed the movie 10. And it's like a white Moorish fantasy palace there on the ocean where you are guaranteed a good time. But that's a noisy time. So if you want a quiet time, I'd recommend that you fly to um, a tiny island off the coast of Antigua in the Caribbean, which is called Jumbi Bay, and there are 38 little hotel rooms scattered around a 300-acre island. Uh, no swimming pool because the ocean is at your doorstep. Um, no cars, just little bicycles to ride around the island on. And if you wanted to be adventurous and go further afield, then I'd recommend that you went to a place called Hayman Island, which is on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, which is probably one of the most extraordinary resorts in the world. Again, on its own island, and um, you are within 20 minutes of going out to see the most incredible underwater sea life possible on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, where are you in Seattle? We are today, um, uh, on behalf of King Television, which airs Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous every week, uh, hosting, King is hosting the annual Toys for Tots luncheon with the advertising community and the broadcast community. And they asked me to come up and uh, sort of be the uh, part of the entertainment. And um, whenever there's an opportunity to do anything for charity and it involves one of our TV stations around the country, uh, we try to squeeze time out of the day and out of the week to come do things like that, and that's why we're here today. When uh, did you realize that you were a celebrity and famous? Was there a moment? Um, no, and I still don't think of myself in, in those terms at all. I mean, I am uh, by profession a, a writer. I write my own show. I am by profession a reporter, so I do all of my own questions. And it always... Uh, sort of bemuses me that people think that I am a celebrity because I'm really not. I'm just a hard-working stiff like anybody else. And, uh, you know, if I was really, quotes, the uh, the celebrity that everybody thinks I am, why would I still be in an edit bay at four in the morning drinking cold coffee out of a styrofoam cup during editing sessions? So, no, I'm, I'm, um, I'm still the worker. What uh, is your most memorable moment on Lifestyle? Um... I think when we hit the 100th show, because that meant we'd been on the air five years, and in a, in a day and age where TV shows get cancelled after four or five airings, uh, it's really quite remarkable to, to know that you've gone five years, and now we're just finishing our seventh year, 
and about to go into our eighth year. And um, I always remember that when we launched this show back in August of 83, people said we were crazy and we should be carried off to the funny farm. Uh, and nobody gave it a ghost of a chance. And here we are seven years later, um, stronger than we've ever been. So uh, I, I think the 100th show represented a milestone mark in achievement. And now we look forward to the 200th show. And uh, one final question would be, uh, where, where do you want to go from here as professional? Well, we have, we have Lifestyles is, is on the air now and Runaway is on the air in its fourth year going into its fifth year. And next September, we, we have a brand new series on the air, six days a week, which is called Preview, which is one of the fastest selling of the new shows in the current TV season. And um, we hope that it, it will be aired also by King here in Seattle. Um, and we'll launch that in uh, the fall of 90. And it would be nice to see that through to its first year of successes. It would be nice to see Lifestyles hit year 10, obviously, because that's another landmark. And then I would like to just pack it all in and, and go build a, a little thatched roof cottage on an island in the sun somewhere. All right. So that's uh, Robin Leach from an interview from 1989. Uh, he mentioned three places in the world that you could go to have a wonderful vacation. Mm-hmm. I would suggest you look into those right now because this was from 1989, so it right. may still may be, <laughs> but that is just a caution in terms of that interview. I'm sure everybody figured that out. But, um, you know, the thing I kind of enjoyed re-listening to the interview, and sorry about the quality of it, that was at least my questions were a little tough then. I remember I was in a hotel room and I had this cheap recorder. But anyhow, so I think you got most of it there. But one thing that uh, I looked on YouTube, some other people who talked to him about his career and so on. Let me just say this. Um, I had more respect for him after going through and reviewing his career on mm-hmm. YouTube and seeing some interviews he did. He's He was actually a very serious guy. He knew what he was doing. He was no, I don't say anybody thought he was a buffoon, but you know, he, a lot of people didn't care for He lifestyle. played up a, a caricature for sure. We have his famous catchphrase phrase was champagne wishes and caviar dreams, you know. Um, and uh, I mean, if you can come up with a concept like that where you get to go hang out at rich people's places for free <laughs> and, you know, you know, go on their fabulous yachts and, you know, visit their fabulous mansions and get paid for that at the same time. I mean, boy, very well, he, smart, yeah, he very clever. Out. But the the other thing that I happened upon too, he worked his tail off. Mm-hmm. He worked hard, and I asked a question about the celebrity part of it. Hey, isn't a great? When did you know you were a celebrity? He said, "I don't really think of myself as a celebrity. I get up, I have to do all these things, blah blah blah." I don't know how I felt about that because he was a pretty famous guy. But you know something? I think he really meant that, and because he did work his tail off, he did have lifestyles going. <clears throat> he had Runaway, another show that was going on at the same time. And that was about uh, where celebrities vacationed at. So we'd follow them around where they, places that they would go around the world. And then he had a show called Preview. And I don't know if how long that lasted, even if it got on the air. But uh, it was like everything new that was occurring at the time. Let's say a medical, new medical center or a hotel or a restaurant being featured. Here's a preview. And um, I take him at his word that uh, he not at his word, because you look at his career and he was uh, a pretty uh, amazing guy in terms of how much he did. And um, he wasn't that wealthy himself. He talked about that. He wasn't poor, but that's not why he was in it. One thing he did say at the end, he wanted to pack it all in and move to some deserted island. He never did that. Um, He passed away um, on August 24th, 2018 in Las Vegas. And um, I just don't think a type of guy with his type of energy can um, ever retire. But another thing I found in some of his writings about what made him successful, and I think this could be taken if you're in marketing or or you are in promotions about some of his tips. For example, he said, I write short sentences. Okay. No sentence shall be more than 10 words long, 10 words long. No word shall have more than seven letters. That must be hard to do. 
He said, I love cliches. I love, um, let me uh, see, I love alliteration. What am I just stumbling on this one? Alliteration? Alliteration. Yeah. God, we talked about that, so I froze on that one. Alliteration. Yeah, it sticks in people's minds. Right, like it did mine there. Right. <laughs> well, maybe not the word alliteration, but the use of alliteration sticks yes. in people's minds for sure. And that is, for example, Claire, close your cluttered closet. Shut the shutters before the shouting makes you shudder. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Alliteration. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> yeah, really, it would be ugly. Um, and I don't quite guess get this one, but I'm just going to say it anyhow. On television, you can wrap your tongue around cliches and aggressive verbs. So whatever, that's from Robin Leach, the late Robin Leach. But uh, very interesting. So we are going to take a little break here. Be right back with some tips going into business for yourself. There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. We are almost out of time, and uh, do thank you for sharing your time with us today. And uh, we're going to do more extensively on the Voices of Experience in terms of talking about entrepreneurship. I'm just going to submit that as we go out today that many businesses fail in the beginning, I believe, because they have too much money. That sounds counterintuitive, but I'm submitting that you again Start your business, keep it small in the beginning, and grow very slowly. You should have about at least six months of money in the bank where you don't have to make any money at all and you can survive. And when I say keep your overhead low, that means really keep it low in terms of uh, working out of your house, do whatever you can, which is a lot easier now than uh, when it was when I started my business, but I still did it that way. And so there's just a lot of things to consider. Makes and um, I really think that, uh, you know, it's the right step that people should take. But seriously, look at uh, some of these tips that we talk about on the show. 